Hello and welcome to the AC Podcast. My name is Troy. I am here today with Wes and Steve. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Good morning. Although, is it morning, Wes? It's not morning where I am, but it is morning where you are. Yeah, right. So, it's morning somewhere. (laughs) To all who are listening to this in the morning, good morning. I feel like the Truman Show. Like, good morning, good afternoon, and good night, in case we don't see you. So, so today we're we're gonna jump into um we're gonna jump right into our topic that is always fun because it it started off somewhat with a post that Wes decided to make and I find so many good podcasts start with it is it, it's always funny when a post takes off more than you you initially expect and so Wes made a post the other day and it kind of stretched out into a much bigger conversation got quite a bit of interaction and so we're going to talk um not just about that post but everything around it but Wes why don't you go ahead and give us a just a little bit of background on that and and the greater conversation coming from it yeah so I was as some of the listeners may know uh part of my nerdiness is that my formal academic area has me reading you know ancient manuscripts and so I was going through a pile of, not a literal pile, I don't have just piles of ancient manuscripts in my office, that would be cool, but uh, not realistic. Are you sure? Because I remember a, a vehicle being taken from Texas. You're telling me there were no manuscripts in that? <laughs> uh, not ancient ones. There were plenty of manuscripts in in that, um, in the form of uh, books. Okay, okay. Uh, you know, it's funny, sometimes I say, in the ancient world, the form of reading was a was a tablet. And then that got replaced by the scroll, which was a higher form of technology. And then the scroll was replaced by uh, what academics call the, the codex, which is just the book. And nowadays we scroll reading books on a tablet. So I don't know what any of that means. But nonetheless, <laughs> in, in, in context of that, I was going through some ancient manuscripts. And there's a, there's a, a series of manuscripts that come from a place in Egypt called Oxyrhynchus, which is a word you can forget as soon as you hear it. But what what basically it is, it's a, a garbage dump of manuscripts that we've been pulling ancient writings, you know, secular, Christian, or otherwise, for really the last 200 years consistently. And that's where a, a good portion of our biblical manuscripts come from, is Oxyrhynchus, Egypt. And there was a particular manuscript which I'd actually known about, I'd heard it referenced, but it kind of came up in this a digital pile that I was going through called P Oxy 744, which is also a very, you know, riveting name. You, you come up on that name, you think, <laughs> oh man, I just can't wait to get to P Oxy 744. But so, so this was a, a particular, it was a letter from a Roman soldier in the first century BC to his wife. And it was uh, about, you know, his pregnant wife who was back in Rome and in it, he talks about, you know, make sure you're taking care of our child, make sure you're staying healthy. And there's one line which says, when the time comes, if it is male, let it be. If it is female, throw it out. And to wow. us, you know, that, that kind of stands out, right? But what it got me in this rabbit hole going down was the fact that the concept of the child's life in particularly the ancient Roman world, but kind of antiquity, this period of ancient history, was pretty kind of uh, uh, tricky because children died at such a young age that really until the age of two, Mm. a child was not considered a person. And so the rights of the child really didn't exist. And so what this got me down on a a rabbit hole of was eventually— I found a a couple of articles that were talking about Roman brothels. And this is what the social media post I made on was. It was that one of the ways that they figure out that an archaeological dig is a brothel, it's just one of, it's not the main way, it's not the only way, but it is one of the ways, is they find collections of child bones. And so there was a, a particular Roman brothel in what's now England, but, you know, it was, it was Roman Britannia uh, from the the period of antiquity where they found close to 100 child bones, uh, the the smallest of which were, were fetus. So it had been like what we would refer to as an abortion um, done and Jeez. and even up to the age of, of about uh, 11 to 12 months, so almost a year old. And 
the thinking was, you know, you have a brothel, so you have, you know, sexual activity going on and the, you know, natural progression of sexual activity, especially in the ancient world without, um, uh, what's the word I'm thinking of? Without, um, contraception. Contraception. Without contraception is, you know, reproduction, (laughs) procreation. And so the end result is a child. And so... If you're particularly, you know, a brothel worker, a, a prostitute, um, and you want to continue working and the sort of status of the child is, is not really held in high regard, then you dispose of the child. And so one of the ways that they'd figured out that this was a Roman brothel was because they'd found so many child bones. And so I, I just kind of, in the post, talked about the fact that, you know, we kind of recoil at that reality in our modern age uh but in the ancient world it wasn't really you know thought of as anything that controversial brothels were commonplace they were uh, pretty you know location-wise pretty frequent in the ancient world they they were not seen necessarily as seedy places although you know there were more seedy ones um that uh existed but they were often in in what we would consider you know upper middle class neighborhoods and it was actually seen as antisocial for Roman men to not go to brothels. In fact, there's one period of time where, for the sake of the family, the Roman emperor had outlawed adultery, which you'd think like, oh, that, that sounds great. But that was only if you were sleeping with another man's wife. That's what w- was adultery. In fact, sleeping with prostitutes was not wow. even—in fact, it was that was considered actually you should be doing that because— you know, sex isn't something that's within the the context of of marriage. Sex is, you know, something you do whenever. It was very, it was very much a power status, correct? Yeah, a, a male, and particularly a, a Roman citizen who yeah. was a male, they they had that right. That was considered a right to have sex with you know prostitutes and even pediatry. You know, sex with children was not considered that bad in um, periods of the ancient world. And so one of the things that I highlighted in this post was, you know, it kind of commented on some of the um, the conversations about abortion. But what I was really focusing on was the fact that there are so many people who think of themselves as not believers, you know, but as secular, rational persons. Yet they live their life by values and intuits and morals and assumptions. And... Yeah. For the record, you know, Troy and, and Steve and you and also, you know, the listeners and myself, so do we. <laughs> and and I bet for all the listeners out there, uh, so do, you know, their friends and their coworkers and so on. We all believe in things like an absolute moral equality for everyone on planet Earth that we like to think is irrespective of how much money you have or the, your you know, social strata that you belong to, that there is a moral equality to everybody. And we believe in things like compassion and that society should be judged by the way it treats its weakest members. We believe these things. Even something like consent, right? Consent is a thoroughly Christian idea. You believe that it should not be like you just said, Troy, that the elite, powerful, influential individuals have the right to the bodies of whomever they please. We believe that consent is essential to the sexual ethic. And you probably believe it is a good thing to go out in the world and, and you know, test, you know, these, these moral uh, assumptions or, you know, scientific assumptions yeah. or whatever we have that are, have been handed to us and subject them to rigorous experimentation. We believe in, you know, freedom, that nobody should be the possession of anybody else, that we should all be in control of our lives. We believe in progress and justice. These are things we believe, but how do we prove that? How do we go about and what's the basis? You know, pointing that it, there's no mathematical calculation. There's no scientific theory or logical equation that can prove these ideas. They're not those kinds of beliefs. And so what what I was trying to point out with this post is that there are many people who live their lives as believers, whether they realize it or not. And we don't often think of, you know, something like consent as a, a Christian thing. Um, it's one of the like higher moral values that we 
kind of allude to today with kind of the the sexual revolution and stuff. But that really is a resurrection of Christianity. When when Paul says that, you know, a man and a woman should have this equal partnership in a relationship, and particularly a marriage relationship, that was not an assumption that someone in his day would have assumed. Yeah, and I can appreciate that too, just coming from the East to the West kind of thing, right? <clears throat> I remember growing up, like you look at my grandparents, for example, um, it's very clear that there is a hierarchy there. And it's very clear who follows whom, right? And are, are they equals? In some ways, yes, um, in the sense that, you know, their children and their children's children, you know, when they address them both, right? Like, I mean, you they're your parents, in the fact that they're your parents, they're equal, but in terms of their husband and wife relationship, there there is a hierarchy there. It's not so much like that anymore today in Korea. In fact, if anything, there tends to be a bit more of you know, the opposite going on there where the wife takes a bit more of the charge and things like that in many cases. But um, even just my grandparents' generation, even my parents' generation, it wasn't like that. There was a, a pretty clear hierarchy there. So even in modern times right it's it wasn't it's not something that's universal it makes me wonder just on this 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 idea that people all you know that, that that they may be more christian than they think they are or they have the inherent values it makes me wonder if this is where the church kind of ran into trouble though because our the truth of the gospel got reduced to uh, a moral standard rather mm. than and actually, you know, a, a transformative truth that we that we know goes far beyond just doing good things. But, you know, I, I'd be willing to argue that that's what has led people into trouble even today, right? Where accepting Jesus into your life is just a get out of hell free card, you know, or it's been reduced to just a sense of morality rather than a true understanding of 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 our sin nature. Mm. I think that's a good point. Troy, and I think even that type of legalism is, it's a, a moralism, right? Essentially, it's saying that Christ's sufficient work on the cross is not enough. I kind of have to do, you know, I have to, I have to feed the poor, yeah. I have to care for the widow, which, you know, the gospel is no less than those things, but it's so much more than those things. And if you reduce it yeah. down to those things, you end up actually eventually divorcing the gospel from it because how will they believe if they mm -hmm. don't hear right and i think you've very uh appropriately brought that up in previous podcasts that like these things are important but at the end of the day if we're not caring if we're saying that their physical needs are more important than their spiritual needs we're actually saying that their eternal needs are are not worth taking care of and and there's a there's a problem there and it so it might be useful sometimes i think i think to point out to people that none of kind of these assumptions that they have come to us via secular humanism right uh, where do they come from well ultimately the source of this is the gospel uh, the gospel is a message that has this kind of outpouring of these things and it should be mm. essentially connected to that. But because a lot of people will look at all of those type of assumptions, and they'll simply say, at least at this point in time in history that we're, we find ourselves in, they'll just say, well, that's just obvious, right? That's just natural. That's just universal. We should take care of people. We should look for things like equality and justice. But I think part of my post on, on social media was pointing out that if you go back to the world that Christianity erupted within— those concepts were not obvious. They were not natural. They were not universal. Children, men, women, slaves, these people weren't always considered people, and some of them were considered property. Others were considered disposable, right? Like like the children. Yeah. These were not natural, universal assumptions. And so where where's mm. the root of something that completely overhauls a societal value like that? Well, 
it can't just be moralism. It can't just be works because that will ebb and flow with time. But the, yeah. the gospel message of you know being created in the image of God and having God himself step out of eternity and into humanity and being able to empathize and sympathize and experience and ultimately, you know, I think I've, I've said it before like this where you know, we, we look at all these worldview systems and there's some form of survival of the fittest, but Christianity is unique in that it's the fittest sacrificing himself for the survival of the weakest. And that changes the narrative. You know, I think this brings up a really good challenge or question in the realm of how we evangelize. You know, our, our churches in a lot of ways, in the la- I would say in the last 10 years, definitely slid more towards pragmatism, right? Like being very seeker-friendly. We want to appease everyone. We want to please everybody. But this this argument that you're bringing up speaks to something that is innate and speaks to something a little bit deeper. But I think if we've been so focused on just being seeker-friendly, then what we've done is we've actually allowed people to be more comfortable than they probably should be. And we actually haven't challenged the foundation of their, their, their morality, their belief system. And, and w- what we end up doing is we just keep recycling people with a very, very shallow faith, a very shallow understanding of even our culture. Because it, me hearing something like this, it sounds horrific, but the... But the challenge for this is like, man, well, where did the gap happen where, okay, the, the way the Romans did it, we see it as heinous. They thought that, that this is just normal. But then you look at the way the world is kind of now, and if you were to, and you don't have to look too far to realize we're not actually too far away from that. It's just painted prettier, right? It's still a broken house, but it's just got a new coat of paint, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um- I remember reading Tom Holland's Dominion and how he traces the influence of the gospel throughout the world. And one of the things that uh, that he, the way he structured the book that I thought was interesting is at the beginning, he talks about Apostle Paul, but then later in the modern times, uh, in the sort of the late 1800s kind of thing, he talks about Friedrich Nietzsche. And how Friedrich Nietzsche actually went, he was sort of a mirror image of Paul in that he was, in that he was the complete opposite, right? Not that they're the same, but complete opposite where his like, yeah, Christian morality is slave morality, you know, um, and all those kinds of strong should rule over the weak and all that kind of stuff. And so... Um, what I see today is, so to your point, Troy, is sometimes I see that sort of with the sort of the decline of the Judeo-Christian ethic in the West, especially, uh, there is the rise of that sort of, I don't want to call it necessarily pagan thinking, but the, this uh, other elements that had been sort of suppressed through Judeo-Christian ethic, right? Like strong ruling over the weak sort of thing. That sort of thing kind of gets gets weakened a little bit. And so there's a kind of a revival of some of that thinking, you know, because uh, I know, Wes, when you wrote this post, although you didn't mention it directly, you had very much in mind the kinds of things that are happening right now with abortion and Roe v. Wade being overturned and the kinds of reaction that is coming about. Um, it, quite honestly breaks my heart to hear some women, pregnant women, right, with their pregnant bellies and on their bellies, you know, she's writing, not yet a human, right? And unborn children being called parasites, leeches, those kinds of things. Um, And so sometimes I wonder, yeah, like like you mentioned in the post, like some of these arguments, they don't sound nearly as, as ancient as they ought to be. Like how far away are are we from some of these uh, negative ancient thoughts, if you will? Yeah, we like to think we're so far removed. I remember just the other day seeing a video during the civil rights movement, Jim Crow, all those sorts of things. Mm. And the video, it's from a historical uh, source. And the video was from 1954 
and it's this a black man getting chased and beaten by cops. And I'm like, this is not that long ago. No. And so it's like, this is where the real work comes in. And first you got to realize one, these belief systems are not that long ago. So you got to stop being surprised that they still exist. And two, stop denying that they poss- that they do still exist because there hasn't been enough time where there has been a consistent belief and uh, uh, ju- laws and justice and things put in place. And even, even a certain age demographic hasn't died off that still are heavily in that, you know, maybe believing something from that world. You know, now we're not necessarily saying we got Romans still alive, but the, the foundations of some of those belief systems are still very much in place. And I think we're seeing a, a unique kind of societal shift, which I think in one sense we can commend, but in another sense we can rightly point out kind of the hypocrisy of the fact that we've seen in the last, particularly I think, you know, two to five years, but definitely not limited to that, a, a real progression in the minds of a lot of people within our society for causes that put first and foremost ideas like justice and equality and equity. Mm. And I think we, we can commend that and we can encourage that. And I think that that's a, a good and beautiful thing. But to hold that in one hand and also say that the life of the unborn child is not valued, I think shows a level of kind of disconnect and incongruity that they want to hold both yeah. things and say, you know, uh, the the rights of the disenfranchised and the rights of the weakest among us, but also arguably <laughs> the most kind of a, a tricky situation with the unborn child. Well, you know, that, that doesn't really count. And uh, I think we can point out to modern day people um, that this, these ideas, we should commend them. And I talked about this kind of the other day on the podcast when we were talking about rights of conscience. Um, but people want to identify as secular humanists. But I think that that kind of gets tricky because secularism doesn't get you to humanism. You know, just to go back um, onto what we were talking about before with the the ancient world you know the caesars were not worried about hypocrisy in fact the pax romana the the peace of rome was considered an ethical good and it was an essential part of that that there were things like slavery you know prisoners of war who were, were refused who refused to assimilate into rome were taken as slaves and gladiators and and that was seen as a moral good because it held the stitch work of the peace of the roman empire together and, and so I think it's totally valid, and I mentioned, like I said on the podcast the other day, when we talked about the rights of conscience, that there, there's secular over here, and on the other side, there's humanist. And I think we can say, you know, yay, humanism. That stuff is good. That stuff is great. Pro-human over here. But I don't think <laughs> that secular, the secular thing on its own gets you to the humanism stuff. The secular answers to the big meaning questions of where we came from, where we're going, how we go upwards and onwards, those don't necessarily then give the answers to get us to love, equality, purpose, meaning, morality, freedom, justice. You know, things that I see kind of put on billboards and I think are good things. I think we should encourage people to pursue those things. But those values have come to us through something and you know whether you want to call it the judeo-christian ethic or the jesus revolution or you know either way these are christian yeah these are christian assumptions that stem from a combination of the old and new testament applied towards society and it's the gospel that kind of sits at the center of that when you were talking steve it reminded me um the historian rodney stark he he wrote an article in in the oxford journal of the sociology of religion on the role of women. And he actually argues that you can track empirically the agency of women across the ancient world by the movement of Christianity. So in other words, whenever an area became populated by Christians, he says you can see a direct correlation with the privileges and treatment of women expanding in a time when the surrounding culture largely didn't view women as being fully human. Now, what gets you there? Well... (laughs) 
it's the idea of being created in the image of God and that Christ died for both men and women. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, to your point, Wes, about secular humanism, um, I find it interesting because I, I've been reading a lot of stuff on transhumanism lately because um, that's what I hope to study later down the road. And if you read some of their literature, you very much get the, the sense that being human is nothing special, right? Being human is nothing special. And so people talk about it. It's more, it's less about being human. What's important is it's less about being human, but more about having consciousness, right? Being a conscious being. And so that's how people yeah. these days try to define what a person is. And so then we're talking about, you know, uh, human non-persons like the unborn or people who have severe dementia or something like that. Or we, we talk about um, non-human persons like, like gorillas and chimpanzees and those kinds of things. And one of the things that um, that kind of, I guess, concerns me is the fact that throughout history, we have used that kind of a strategy, if you will, to consistently dehumanize other people. Sometimes, it, these days, it's based on consciousness. But you take mm. it back a couple hundred years ago, it was based on, it might have been based on skin color. Um, so it, based on your skin color, it, you, know, you were either identified as slave material or not. Right. Um, what else might might it be? Right. I mean, and, and so I find it interesting. It, you you say that you know there's if you, if you're secular, you really ultimately can't have humanism, um, and in a sense, I'm seeing that because a lot of the literature that I'm reading on transhumanism, they take a very secular view. And and it seems to be that's that's where it's headed. It's being human is nothing special. I I read that over and over again, and it's more about being having that that consciousness. Um, so yeah, it's it's interesting that you should bring that up. Well, and even taking it in a a bit of a, a different direction that that made me think of it while we were talking. Even something like the way we view warfare, because if you really break it down. Either you believe in just war, which gets its system, its systematization, easy for me to say, from Augustine, who is leaning on Romans 13, or you believe in pacifism, which gets its kind of origin from the Anabaptist and some of the early church writers who themselves lean on something like the Sermon on the Mount. Either way, this is a Christian discourse about the procedure of warfare. Like nobody is going around promoting the conquest thing, you know? which everybody in the ancient world was, right? The Egyptians, the Mesopotamians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Chinese, the Mongols, you name it. Nobody today is attempting the Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, Genghis Khan thing. You know, the, the take over the world thing. At least not that they're admitting. Well, it's done online now. Yeah, that's right. That's <laughs> right. And, and even I would go as far as saying it, when there are nations that do things that we deem as overstepping the rights of fellow sovereign nations, they kind of dress it up in a just war kind of illusion. So no dictator mm. leader today is just outright saying, you know, all these places are mine now. You know, I don't care. You know, nation <laughs> and empire takeover, that was relatively normal in the ancient world, but we view it completely differently now. And I don't think it's a stretch in saying that's due to the global Christian revolution. Like, we, we don't view it as perfectly normal if a country starts sending troops over the border of another country and just simply declaring, you know, I'm going to start setting up flags here. The, this is mine now. Or even something like healthcare, education, welfare, all these cases, it's a matter of essentially asking the question, how much of a good Samaritan can we afford to be? That's pretty much the question, right? The Good Samaritan had to have a certain amount of silver to pay the innkeeper and make the healthcare happen, right? And these days, we want to at least pass ourselves off, maybe not as Good Samaritans, but okay Samaritans. and <laughs> Decent Samaritans. <laughs> yeah, right. That's right. The Decent Samaritan. That's my favorite parable. And 
You know, we can have a dispute about whether the state should be the main Good Samaritan or whether private charity should be the Good Samaritan, but even that debate assumes that someone should take care of others. That's a Christian conversation at its base. as a moral influence that drives the cultural assumption. Yeah. Well, here here is my trouble with some of that, and uh, I'll give you some pushback here. Because on the one hand, I, I look around the world and I go, okay, yeah, I see the influence of Judeo-Christian ethic here. But on the other hand, there are other places like, you know, in, in Asia, for example, you know, people talking about virtue and, and those kinds of things and how we should take care of the less fortunate those kinds of those are there now. I don't know if that came like post arrival of Christianity in Asia. That I'm not sure. But having said all of that, on the one hand, I see that yes, the ancient world was so different, and Christianity and Judaism have had a massive influence, especially in the West and all around the globe. On the other hand, I do understand that you know people have this common moral intuition. It may not be perfect. But there is, and so, for example, in the abolition of man, C.S. Lewis has this whole appendix about how we all share this this moral intuition about uh, about the good, justice. Now, the details of that may differ, right? Because I think, um, I think if you were to ask a, a Roman male whether um, we should not do to one another as we would not want to be done by. I think the Roman male would have agreed to that. Of course, the the question is, well, but who is my equal? That would have been the question, right? Because, I mean, we all believe that we should help other people, but who gets included in that number, right? Just as in the conversation of abortion, for example, everybody, I think, would agree that Anyway, maybe I'm answering this question for you, but uh, how do you navigate the tension between, on the one hand, yes, Christianity has had a huge impact across the globe, in fact, and especially in the West with with its Judeo-Christian ethic. But on the other hand, people do have this common moral sense. Hmm. Yeah, I think I would answer that by saying that I think it totally makes sense that as human beings created in the image of God, we would at least to some degree via kind of our natural inclinations of the imago day have a desire to help help others because we have a conscience we have that aspect of it but i would even push back even on some of the eastern philosophical concepts because now i haven't looked into all of them but the ones that i have looked at have uh, a very strong kind of undertone of reincarnation. And if you're adhering by things like samsara, of the process of birth, life, death, and rebirth, karma, both in kind of traditional philosophical Buddhism and in Hinduism, is based on the idea that whatever your lot in this life is, it's due to your lot in your last life. And I've actually talked to both Buddhists and Hindus who have decried aspects of philanthropy and helping others because that's actually undoing their karma and it's actually not helping them because they are being punished because they have to suffer to pay off their karmic debt yeah and and describing things like uh missions to go help people who are in dire circumstances in other you know whether that's other parts of the world or even uh, here in Canada, as as not being a moral good, as actually being a moral ill, because you're preventing them from burning off that moral debt. And that is a very Eastern thing. Um, it, it exists in aspects of, of both Buddhism and Hinduism and some other forms of, of uh, you know, Eastern religious thought. And I think it, it really was the influence of Christianity, particularly missionaries, although I don't think limited to missionaries, but Christians in general, who kind of promoted this idea of the breaking down of both the caste systems and kind of the undertones and uh, logical conclusions of the caste systems and the logical conclusions of a wholly just 
but lacking in grace and mercy religious philosophical concept. Does that make sense, what I'm saying, Steve? Mm -hmm, I think so. Because I find that, um, and I shared this story before, right, um, about being invited to this conference, Apologetics Conference in Winnipeg in February, um, and how they had this multi-faith panel before my session on religious pluralism. And, you know, and, and every single one of the panelists emphasized being a good person. Now, I, and I think that's why a lot of the times people think, oh, religions are all basically the same. But then if you were to ask each of the panelists, why should we be a good person? I think the answers would differ radically yeah. because they have different conceptions of what a human being is, what our relationship is to God, whether there is a God, what is the nature of salvation or something equivalent to a salvation, and how do we get there? And what is the fundamental human problem? All those things, they would answer very differently. Um, and so even if there are some superficial similarities, I think in terms of its justification, I think it would be very different. That's where I would land. But again, that, for me, this is still a very much a thought in progress. So, Well, and when I think the question why and the answer so what is a devastating argument, to your position, then, and, and you're tied in knots trying to explain it, then you probably have a problem. You know, if I say, you know, well, why do good? And you have to go into this long explanation. Um, and I say, okay, well, so what? And that ends up being, you know, pretty substantial in terms of a pushback, then your, your grounding probably has something to be desired. What about, say, why don't we do a test on that with Christianity, like the Judeo-Christian worldview? Uh, we should do good to one another. Why? Why should we do that, Wes? Because you're an image bearer of God. Everyone is an image bearer of God. Mm -hmm. And and how does that obligate me to treat you with respect and others with respect and decency and those kinds of things? Because by the nature of you bearing the image of God, you are in the same lot as everyone else. So you are created in God's image, and so that image is sacred, and so you do not have the right to violate that sacredness of the image of God in another person, whether that's their physical person or their property or their mental or sexual or emotional state. That is something that is imprinted on you by your creator, and you have no right to violate it. Okay. Well, I, I won't push that any more than what I have done, I, and I think we, we could—I mean, I can, I, I can put my skeptic's hat on, and I can see how a skeptic might continue pushing that. Uh, sometimes it's almost like, okay, you're, now you're pushing just because you want to push, but, um, but I don't know. Yeah. Like, for, for me, that— the answers that you have given makes a lot of sense, but again, uh, I've been steeped in the Judeo-Christian ethic for a long time, and I am a Christian, and so I wouldn't necessarily trust my intuition 100%, but um, rationally, it makes makes sense to me. And that's the challenge, right? Like, when you, you have that conversation with another Christian— you, you may have some slight differences in your theology and those sorts of things. Your convictions might be a little bit different, but at least at the basis of it, you're like, you're right. I can't really argue with that, you know. But I remember in Bible college in our ethics, uh, our ethics course, um, one of the tests we did uh, in our Bible college was we it was like almost like it was more like debating as a Christian 101, you know, like how to go and evangelize in public. And. They, our teacher had us go up and he created uh, two lines and it felt like a, you know, like a drama uh, warm up or whatever. He had Christians on one side, he had non-Christians on the other side. And me, naturally, I'm like, well, I'm going to line up as a non-Christian. And the people on the other side, they have to essentially convince me that Jesus is real. And it was really funny because the teacher said, you can't just say, so what? And I, I offered pushback on him and I said, well, well, why? Because if this is supposed to be a training 
about how I'm supposed to evangelize, tell some about Jesus, defend my faith, then I have to be willing, then, then we have to be willing to create a scenario where you're going to run into the so what's, or you're going to run into people that may not have a very deep basis, but, at, but at the core of their, their issue with the church, they, they may be able to tell you, but they, they can't get there, you know, if we don't really work through that conversation. And so we're going back and forth. And I'm like cleaning people out of the other line. Mm -hmm. Just like, they're like, well, do you believe in Jesus? I'm like, no, I don't believe Jesus is real. Well, why? And it was just like, because I don't believe in Jesus. I've never seen him. He's invisible. You know, you give all the feelers. Mm -hmm. And what it just, that just prime example is still happening very much to, mm -hmm. you know, to every single day mm -hmm. in the church. Um, we approach people with this understanding of, well, it completely transformed my life. Everything, like my mind is blown. The idea of my, my sonship and me being an image bearer, if I just use the right words, that's going to be enough. And really, this is where, where I saw people's theology challenged, where I saw mine challenged, where really that faith is such a gift. Like we talked about this barrier between humanism and secularism and how Christ really is in the middle of it. Getting to that Christ barrier, it's not about getting through it. As I've been listening, it's not about getting through it, it's about getting to it. Getting to that Christ barrier is an absolute gift that comes with the gift of faith. And hmm. if we just continue to try and exercise what we think is enough, then we've actually taken the onus on ourselves, too much of an onus on ourselves, and we've stopped creating atmospheres and moments for the Holy Spirit in our churches, in our ministries, and we're actually creating every everything's coming down to works again. And that's where I find is the danger comes in is we've done all the works. We did all the right things, but they still don't believe God. They still don't believe now because my foundation was built off of works, was built off of what I could do, was built off the right sayings and Christianese. Now I'm, I'm feeling like I got to deconstruct because because everything I thought I believed isn't, isn't working. So what's wrong? Mm. Well, and I think it's a case of pulling through the, the logical conclusions of the worldview. So if we pull through the logical conclusions of the Christian worldview and the gospel, we do get love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, that is the logical progression. But if yeah. you pull through a naturalistic, secular framework, you don't get that, right? According to a naturalistic secular framework, you're an evolved chimp. So why do you have inalienable intrinsic human rights? You know, where does that come from? You know, according to that framework, you're a biologically oriented survival machine. So why do you need to care for the weakest and most vulnerable? Now, according to that framework, your brain has evolved for the purpose of carrying on the survival of selfish DNA. So it's you and yours. So that doesn't really give you warrant necessarily. And I mean, I'm not saying that people who adhere to that worldview shouldn't be doing those things. They shouldn't be taking care of other people. I, I think they should. I think that that's important for them to do so. But the question is, why? You know, where in your worldview do you get a foundation to say that you know, survival of the fittest is the driving force for life on the human planet, and also pursuing a master race via the subjugation and extermination of, you know, the weaker thans is bad. I don't think you can, you can cross that chasm. Whereas exactly what you said, uh, Troy, the, the Christian worldview and the, the gospel and seeing the spirit move in a person's life, that gives you a framework and an undergirding and a reason to reach out in love and respect to those around you. I was actually doing my devotions uh, yesterday and, and I was thinking about some of this stuff as we were talking about maybe doing this on the podcast. And I was reading through Matthew 13, which is the parable of the sower. And Jesus says that his kingdom will give rise to, you know, this great crop and will grow an incredible harvest, even though there are things like birds pecking at the seed and there are shallow, thor sorry, shallow soil and thorns. And by the end of Matthew 13, 
the mustard seed has grown into the largest tree, and it says that even the birds are perching in its branches. And while I was thinking about that, I was thinking, oh, that isn't that interesting? The birds that had once opposed the word of God are now midair, resting in, supported by the thing that they were once pecking at, the truth of the gospel. And so I think one of the things we can do within the so-called you know, whether you want to call it the culture wars or whatever, is simply point out the seed that sprung the plant that basically everyone in our modern world is supported by and perching in, and then ask them, you know, where do you think that comes from? Where do you think that assumption of human value and purpose and meaning and morality, what's the basis of that? Because I actually think you're the bird perching in, in the tree of my worldview, even though you might even still be pecking at a branch here and there. And I think how we <clears throat> package that is really important too, because when some people hear that, um, you know, they might just kind of be a little bit put off saying, oh, here are a bunch of Christians, you know, think, you know, feeling superior about their morality, yada, yada, yada. But me, I'm thinking, no, actually, that's not the angle that I want to come at this from. What, what I am starting with here is that you and I share this moral intuition. You and I both believe in the dignity and, and worth of human beings, regardless of race, sex, gender, whatever it might be. And so, so I, I'm not thinking of myself as necessarily superior to you. But I think of ourselves as we're on the same page here. I'm, I'm simply asking you to think about the justification of all of that. Like, what is your view sitting on, right? Like, Because, I yeah. mean, if you don't have, let's say, let's go back to that example you mentioned, Wes, about naturalistic kind of a view of the world where we're just survival machines for propagating our DNA kind of a view. In that kind of a case, when a society comes to believe in the inherent dignity of a human being, regardless of race, gender, you know, height, size, whatever it might be, um, right. if a society comes to believe that, it's just a happy coincidence. There's no reason, nothing tethering you to that view and so if you move from on move on from there back to the kind of an ancient conquest kind of a mindset right let's let's say we we go back there there isn't necessarily anything wrong with that because whatever view you happen to hold it's just what is there's nothing that that tethers you to any one particular view and that's why i think we need to talk about the grounding you and i seem to share this common moral intuition about the inherent human dignity, regardless of whatever their traits might, might be, um, what, what are you sitting on there? What is the branch that you're sitting on? So I think that might be a, a, a better way to approach it. Not, not that that's not what you were saying, but I'm just contrasting this approach versus, hey, we're morally superior. Um, I, I hope people don't get that kind of an impression because that's not where I want to be at. Yeah. Yeah. And that was one of the pushbacks I got on the post. I mean, I stopped reading the comments and just kind of let it go because <laughs> that's the best thing to do for someone's mental health anyways. But yes. a, a lot of the pushback I did get um, on the social media post was, well, look at all the examples of bad Christians. And I couldn't help but thinking, like, that is actually a good rebuttal, but it doesn't actually, A, understand the the purpose of the post and talking about, you know, the, the grounding, and B, uh, we wouldn't actually do that with anything else. You know, looking at my grade 11 math grades, you wouldn't then conclude, well, Wes has no idea how to do long division, so therefore math is not true. You know, you don't judge mathematics by the adherence of its, you know, the attempts of doing it. Math is true, whether I'm good at math or not. And I think Christianity is true, likewise, whether I actually live out that ethic well or not. 
Now, that's not an excuse for not living it out well, right? I think the, the Spirit of God should be moving in the life of the believer to the point where that should be convicting us. But the, the presence of bad Christians is no more a rebuttal to the truth claims of Christianity than the presence of uh, bad mathematic practitioners is a rebuttal to the existence of mathematics being a reality in the universe. Yeah. Another great, great conversation, honestly. It's really intriguing when you look at just how culture and history is, is shifting and changing and forming, but it's pretty sobering to realize how we're not too far removed from some things that today we would say are absolutely heinous and, you know, and, and awful and horrible but it's important to remember that because we're not so far away, that we can still be active in not so much uncovering these things, but really applying the gospel and, and the grace of the gospel as we see those things today. Yeah. Because otherwise, you'll, you'll go insane, right? If, if Wes were to sit on his, his Instagram trying to argue with every single person that, that has a comment, you know, it's not fruitful. It, it's not. It's it's just going to end up. It's just not going. It it steals away from the whole point of it, and the point of it is we want people to know to to know Jesus. We want people to have a rooting in their faith, have an understanding of of what the gospel is, and then by then go ahead and make your decision ultimately. So thank you guys so much for the for this conversation. Thank you listeners for joining us today on the AC podcast. It is a ministry of Apologetics Canada. So make sure to like and subscribe. And if you would ever like to reach out, you got a question. If you don't like Wes Instagram, you can reach him on his social media or you can send us an email <laughs> at info at apologeticscanada.com. Uh, but interact with us on social media, on the, the private accounts, on our AC account. Your interaction only helps get the the message of the gospel for it we need your we need your help in that in that area uh but till next time tune in next week when we find more things to think about as always love god love people bye for now <laughs>